Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hope you all are enjoying the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Matt Kilby. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our next panel, Start Me Up. Today's panelists are going to be Nate Silver, Editor-in-Chief of 538, Dean Kamen, Founder of First, Alexis Ohanian, Co-Founder, Managing Partner, Initialized Capital, Co-Founder of Reddit, Jason Robbins, Chief Executive Officer of DraftKings, and our panel will be moderated by Jessica Gelman, Chief, Chief Executive Officer of the Craft Analytics Group. The panel will be 45 minutes and will hold 10 minutes for questions. You can submit questions via Twitter through the hashtag entrepreneurs. The top questions will be selected by the moderator and presented at the end of the panel. With that, I'll turn it over to Jessica. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. All right, I am so pumped for this discussion. I'm probably geeking out because, in my opinion, you guys are just some of the most impressive innovators uh, and, uh, sorry, entrepreneurs that we have. And looking forward to helping you guys share your stories and ultimately how we can take what you've done in and outside of sports and apply it to sports in the future. So we're going to start with uh, a philosophical question. So Henry Ford famously said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. As entrepreneurs and, invent and, and in innovators, there's two ways to identify needs, my estimation. Giving the consumers what they didn't know that they needed or by listening to the customers. You each have all taken a very different path towards entrepreneurship. Let's talk about this concept and what your approach is to recognizing a new industry or a new opportunity. And then specifically, if you can share what, how you approached it and what you think made it successful for you. So Jason, let's, I'll start out with you. Uh, I love that quote. And um, I think there is almost in some ways a misinterpretation that sometimes happens with it. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when you talk to early stage investors, the first question they ask you is, what problem are you trying to solve? And what's built into that quote is, he did hear from customers or potential customers they had a problem to solve. It was just a different solution that he came up with. But he knew people were not satisfied with the speed of transport. Um, if they wanted a faster horse, that was their solution. Uh, he obviously had a much better one. but. I think that it's important that it still was rooted in a need of the customer that you had to you know, have your ear to the market, you had to listen to what people's needs were in order to understand. And um, that level of demand was obviously very real, uh, but the solution he came up with was different. And I think that's a really um, you know, common way that entrepreneurs who innovate uh, attack things. They attack a problem that everybody knows about, but it's either something that people just had given up on and thought, hey, this is just the way it is, there's no solution to it, uh, or it's a solution that they never would have thought possible. Um, and I think a lot of the innovation that you see really stems from that. So, well, I'll just generally say, do you guys agree with that, or is, do you disagree with what Jason has laid out? Please here? don't disagree. No, no I, <laughs> well, I, I agree with it, and I think I can give you a specific example where so in the early days, the, the first version of Reddit only had one community, and there was just one. It was a small website. We started it here in Medford, uh, Massachusetts, actually. And 
We had one front page with probably thousands of active users, so very small at this point. And we noticed this trend where, uh, because we started with a tech-based community, there were early on a lot of links around programming, um, you know, CSS tutorials were all the rage back in 2005. Um, and eventually we got to a size where people were complaining that those links were no longer showing up on the front page because the site had gotten big enough that people were also interested in sharing links and having discussions about other things like politics or sports. And the feedback from our users was, you need to ban these discussions around sports and politics because people don't care about those things. We care, the original Redditors, most about programming and tech-related news. And so if we had heard that feedback and tried to make them a faster horse, I don't think any of you would be seeing me on a stage right now. Instead, we realized, okay, what they really want is to know that they have their own community for their own conversations, so we'll let people build their own subreddits or let, let people create their own communities within Reddit for whatever topics they want. And so that was the, like, in real time, listening to feedback and realizing, and that was, I mean, that's the reason we ultimately beat Dig, which was our competitor for a number of years. Um, that's what's really defined Reddit for the last 15 years, and it came from, frankly, just getting lucky and not making the wrong decision of trying to create a single community to please everyone, but instead let people find their own. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Nate and Dean? So since you like um, Henry Ford quotes, and I agree with you, that one's misinterpreted, I think there's one that may be more interesting to people. Because Henry Ford also once said, a problem well-defined is half-solved. And most of the things I've done in my life, it wasn't a great new innovative solution to a well-defined problem. It was looking at the same problem everybody else has been looking at and seeing it differently. First, of course, my program to get kids into tech resulted from the fact that for decades as I grew up, people standardly believed the problem in this country is we have an education crisis. We don't have enough kids, girls going into tech. And everybody assumed it's an education crisis. You solve that in the schools. You solve that. I looked at that problem and said, you know, we don't have an education problem at all. We spend more money on education than the rest of the world combined on a per capita basis. Everybody I know knows a great teacher in great schools. I said, we don't have an education crisis. We have a culture crisis. Our culture has been dominated, frankly, which is why I'm here today, by two industries, entertainment and sport. And in a free country where you get the best of what you celebrate, uh, kids are obsessed with excelling at sports and entertainment. And we have no shortage of great kids from every background doing well there. And what do they say? The uh, Im imitation is the highest form of flattery. Uh, also, as an inventor, as an innovator, as an entrepreneur, I'd rather not try to solve a problem. I'd rather borrow a solution that already works, because solving problems is hard. So the, the, the industry of, of sports has solved the problem of creating passion in kids to excel at something. The trouble is, it's not math and science and algebra, and there aren't a few million jobs every year in, in the NBA and the NFL, but there are millions of jobs now, fantastic careers available to kids that prepare for them, and so to me, the whole business of first was not asking people, do you want a faster horse? It was, hey, everybody, you've misdiagnosed your problem. Don't solve the education problem that you presume we have that we don't have. My mom's a teacher. She reminded me of that today. <laughs> the fact is, everybody knows we've got great teachers. 
re-look at the same situation everybody else looks at and see the problem differently, and you'll come up with very innovative entrepreneurial solutions. In our case, it was use the power of sports to get kids passionate about, de about developing the muscle between their ears. And if you can make it as exciting as any other sport, the only difference between our sport and the others is in our sport, every kid can turn pro. Nate, you have anything else to add here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always, there's always a risk at a forum like this of kind of overgeneralizing from one person's success story and there's yep. survivorship bias and all that type of stuff. Um, so I'll just tell my story and whether or not it's good advice or bad advice, I have no opinion about. Um, but with 538, um, it was really just building a product that I wanted to see and that I thought it needed to be built. Um, it's easy to tell a narrative now where you're like, well, okay, I recognize that there was a, you know, sports analytics had taken off and therefore politics is a big passion and, you know, we'd have this guy named Obama and this guy named Trump that were going to really get people interested and excited, right? You know, I didn't really know all that. It was just that I thought that political coverage sucked. Um, <laughs> I thought I had a different and or better way to do political coverage, at least some part of it. We don't cover all aspects of politics, but, um, and, you know, kind of built the product from there. Um, I mean, obviously, you should listen to, um, to customers to some extent. There are things, you know, we didn't have a 538 podcast when we launched, um, you know, under ESPN, now at ABC News six years ago. And now it's actually like the most popular podcast in all of ABC News or ESPN, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of see how you can like use the whole animal a little bit better, right? You know, you want to produce content. There are very much demands for all different types of content right now, but you have a level of quality you want to achieve, you only have so many hours in a day. Um, so, you know, looking at what readers and the audience wants is important. Looking at what your staff wants is important, because the minute you go and have a staff of 30 people, then it doesn't matter what your culture is, it's now 30 people's, or ought to be at least, 30 people's vision. Maybe you're a heavier weight than the average person, um, but it's a collective vision now. And you have to, I think, also, like, kind of ignore critics um, critics are idiots. <laughs> I think we maybe all have products that people um, misunderstand and stereotype to different degrees and that have very kind of loyal and passionate user bases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, literally, I think one of the things I think about in life is what are people who give you such mm -hmm. bad advice that you should like literally do the opposite sight unseen? I think there is something to be said for people who, um, who misunderstand what you're trying to do for the conventional wisdom actually being worse than random. I think it's really interesting because you, you, all of you guys talked about seeing something in a different way, bringing outside concepts to bear, and listening to customer feedback. But there's also a tremendous amount of data that you're collecting. So as you're getting customer feedback, how do you know which information that you're going to listen to? Is it how much of it is what you think or gut? and how much of it is analytically based? I mean, weirdly, we are not as analytically driven as you would, as you would think, right? Um, but it's also because like, you don't quite measure the right thing, right? right. Um, you know, we are interested in, and again, I'm mainly these days in an editorial mm -hmm. role. You know, I'm not, I don't really have the power to run the business um, that's more run by the Walt Disney Corporation. Um, but we're trying to basically build long-term brand equity and an audience. Um, and a short-term traffic spike 
is probably a rather imperfect correlate of that, right? Like we could publish um, some false rumor, right? Could publish a rumor today saying, oh, Joe Biden will name Kamala Harris as his VP this afternoon, which is just, we made up, right? Um, we would temporarily have the highest traffic on the internet, right? Um, but would destroy, hopefully, our brand reputation. Or not, you know, you know what I mean. Right? Hopefully people <laughs> would react to that in a negative way if it were a false story. And so, you know, so um, I do think like in subscription models, we don't have one at 538. We've kind of thought about them at times. Mm. Um, those do seem to align incentives a little bit be better in my business where like, and there are problems too, right? But like, you know, if you have a loyal audience, then they're focused more on the long run. They're focused more on, on quality. Um, it's a bit more sustainable because... I don't know, we are trying to get people to take, um, to take a longer term view and kind of zoom out right. at a moment when they're very impassioned about something and on a right. subject, meaning politics and sports, that people are very passionate about. And so that kind of goes better with not trying to provide clickbait and instead, um, right. instead ask people to like take a deep breath. You have something to add, Jason? Uh, I mean, so as far as listening to customers, I think, uh, you know, obviously it depends on your product, but generally speaking, I think always listen to customers, but it comes back to the points everybody here was making on your previous question. Don't necessarily listen to them literally. If they're saying, here's what I want, you have to interpret what your customers are saying. Obviously then there's a whole other aspect of prioritizing based on a variety of different factors. But as far as just being, you know, aware of their needs, I think that's the important thing. And what you have to be careful is, they usually don't present it to you. Sometimes they do, but they usually don't present it to you as a problem. Take Alexis' example. They weren't telling them, hey, we have this issue. We really want you to come up with a creative way to solve. They were telling them what they wanted them to do. And that wasn't necessarily aligned with where they, they were going. So what he was able to do was figure out a solution that met that need by interpreting underneath what they were asking for what the underlying problem was. Uh, and I think if you're able to do that, that is actually a really important aspect of being successful in any consumer-driven business. Um, you know, people who have their ear to the ground generally in the market and understand things, it's really no different. It's being able to hear whether it's your customer base or a potential customer base, um, read between the lines, what are people actually describing as the problem, and then go try to figure out how to solve that. And to your point, I think if you actually define it well, you can solve it mostly through just defining the problem, but if you listen to literally, you end up creating something that may undermine other things you're trying to do or just may not be the best solution. So I love this concept, um, Dean, that you spoke about, which is you're borrowing a solution. And it's so interesting for me here because you guys have built things that didn't exist before. So the fact that you still look at, at that as a concept, I guess two questions here is one, what have you borrowed successfully from others? And two, what has been borrowed from you that you guys innovated? I'll start with you, Dean, because you have a thousand patents. <laughs> you can give a whole nother conversation about so it. So in, in my day job, as you know, sports and first is my nights and weekends passion, but I actually do have 800 smart people that are good at something and it's developing mostly medical equipment and a thousand patents. Yeah, but, but when you said borrow things, I always find that going to a different industry that's been looking at some issue, maybe with a different tool set in a different way, can give you sometimes a leap that's not an incremental improvement on what's already being done. So and and an, ex one. an example, example is yeah. I got a whole bunch of people that up in New Hampshire that 
have been building all sorts of medical equipment, infusion pumps, diagnostics. We were asked by a major company a number of years ago, Johnson & Johnson, to improve on the stent. Well, a stent is a piece of 316 stainless steel that gets right past elastic deformation, near yields, you know, after it goes through the coronary artery. It's all about metallurgy. That's not a field that most people in the medical world have experience with, but the aerospace industry has been doing that for decades. You want everything that flies to be as light as possible, but no lighter than that. And if you start to see fatigue life limits on stuff, oh, the wing fell off, it would ruin your whole day. So I, I happen to own a helicopter company. I built a 1,000 helicopters, and I called a few guys in from Michigan where we make it. I said, guys, I want to do an analysis of this thing. And in less than six weeks, because they've spent decades doing literally analysis, very good computer modeling of what happens to metals as they fatigue, we designed a new stent. It was hugely successful. And the entire stent was designed by a bunch of motor heads in in Michigan that couldn't tell you what a stent is or what it's used for six weeks before they solve the problem. Give me another example. Something that's been borrowed from you or something that you borrowed from another organization. Anyway. I mean, I feel like 538's been borrowed from more than the reverse. Um, <laughs> I think it was, I think I talked to Bill James for my book and he said, um, you know you have something important and you know you've kind of hit the big time when people start taking from you without giving you credit. Um, <laughs> so I kind of think like... Had he taken something from you? No, not from me. I've taken... I, well, he's someone who I would take from, right? Because he certainly had the, um, the ability to like actually say, okay, this is analytics, right? And he's a very skilled practitioner, I think more than he would let on. But, like, but it's meant to be approachable by people in a mass audience. And by the way, it's also meant for people who really love the domains that they're covering, right? At least in sports in particular. I don't think I actually love politics. I don't like politics, right? That's kind of a weird exception. <laughs> Although politics, you actually have to have like, it helps to have some distance, right? Um, but in sports, like why would you be ever spending a moment in sports analytics unless you actually like the sport that you're, that you're covering? Um, but yeah, people, people steal from you and, and, and copy from you. That's kind of the way right. the free market works, I guess, right? Um, but it's also why, like, you know, every year we rebuild our models, right? Like, not from scratch. Obviously, it helps to have, like, a code base and stuff like that, right? Um, but we're trying to push problems that are, are challenging because you do get better over time and, like, you know, and we see what someone else does. We're like, okay, actually, we're kind of a step ahead and we kind of learned what we did last time that worked or didn't work. And so, and so I think, like, you know, to maintain any type of brand advantage, mm. like, for that to happen even once... Yeah. is extremely lucky, right. so to have it be sustainable for a long period of time, I mean, you have to constantly be, right. be innovating. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> for us, like, um, pretty much everything we do is borrowed. I would imagine there were cavemen throwing sticks and rocks at each other and betting figs on who would get knocked <laughs> out first at some point back in, you know, millennia ago. So I think just the whole concept for us has been borrowed. And, a lot of what we try to do is take what's been done before and figure out ways to make it better, whether that's an application of it in a new, through a new channel or whether that's just coming up with things that serve that need that maybe people hadn't thought of before. Um, but at the core, you're, you know, in our case, borrowing from uh, a market that's existed for pretty much the history of time. And um, I think that you know, trying not to stray too far from what that base desire is and just come up with how do you apply that in the 21st or, you know, beyond century, I think is how we think about it. Yeah. Well, I think you're being humble. I think well, that you, 
uh, kind of create an, an industry there. So I think, well, <laughs> look, I, I, what, what you're hearing though really does ring true from all the founders I know. Like everything is a remix in one way or another. And I mean, Reddit wouldn't exist if it weren't for forums, message boards, even we took inspiration from Slashdot. Uh, and any of the things that I'm particularly like proud of with like up and down votes and threaded comments, um, those are all things that are just echoes of other things. Right. And, and we work with companies all the time now that like from day one have to think about something even just a little bit differently in order to create a 10x better solution. Yep. And there, there's a company we incubated called Gloria that I had two Argentinian founders who realized there was no infrastructure for identifying global talent in football or soccer. And, and his, it's still the domain for a lot of these young players of like, you know, sending in a tape effectively, right? The, the tech hasn't changed much and the scouting infrastructure, especially as you get into the develop, developing world is just so limited that now that everyone has a smartphone, how do you create a better way, a better ecosystem for people to self-identify their own talents? And if they're doing dance challenges on TikTok, why not create a similar platform for them built around football? And that, that was the pitch for Gloria. And we're watching this and we're like, okay, uh, you know, how does this future look if you have a global community creating content where unlike TikTok, where someone in the suburbs is gonna co-opt your dance and you won't get credit for a number of months until someone in the New York Times write an article about you, what could you do, which is true, uh, what could you do if you actually got buy-in from the biggest football leagues in the world to say they will use these platforms as a way to surface up talent? And, and it's not like, it's not a leap today, it's just pulling off the shelf of other ideas, applying them in a new way, which in 10 years could actually prove to be a demonstrably better way to scout talent. Well, so, I mean, to that point, for you guys who see things before they happen and identify the problems that other people, or how to solve the problems, as you're looking ahead, based on what is happening in business and society, we have consumer rights challenges with data privacy, we have technology innovating at a pace that I think is unheralded, we have healthcare and political challenges. What do you think, for you guys now, what are the biggest areas of opportunity for innovation over the next two to three years? I mean, I can't think past the election, right? <laughs> Is there an election coming up? Yeah, thinking about like... You don't like politics, though, so it's not a big deal. New Zealand or somewhere to go in December or January. Um, <laughs> I know, look, we're really excited about um, about our sports products at 538, in addition to um, in addition to politics, so they're, they're a little bit on hold right now. But we just uh, launched a new NBA forecasting system called Raptor earlier this year. Um, we have plans to build more of those capabilities out in baseball and football and other sports too. So I don't know. We really do love sports. Um, and one thing I don't like about election years, I don't get to spend as much time following sports, right? Um, although still pretty often. Um, but you know, and also, like I said, like there are still business model challenges that, that we think about for, right. for 538. Um, like I said earlier, like I do think subscriptions are, um, Subscription are probably a part of the future for, um, for digital media, which in many ways is still a fairly distressed mm. industry. Um, and so there's lots of stuff once we have a little bit more time on our hands that we're, we're gonna focus on. I think uh, 5G proliferation of smart devices and smart homes is going to change content consumption in a big way. And so 
um, you know, it's something we're thinking about, you know, not necessarily tomorrow, but down the road. How do we, in a world where people aren't interacting primarily with their phone all the time, especially when they're home, um, and that's crazy to think, right? Um, but if you think about it, 10 years ago, nobody was doing that in the first place. So um, what we've seen is that, you know, constantly the medium uh, by which, you know, we are communicating with each other, by which we are interacting with uh, content is, is always changing. Uh, and, you know, you have to be prepared for that because there's no reason to think it's going to stay the same as much as we all think so. Um, you know, just think back 10 years ago is completely different. So uh, unless somehow that technology trend breaks, um, which it hasn't for the last few centuries, right. it's going to change again. Dean? I, I, as much as everybody's excited about 5G, to put that in perspective, that's an incremental improvement over where we are now. If you really, really want to know where the big changes are going to be, it's when a, a disruptive technology takes hold because some basic new science. 60 years ago when Bardeen and Shockley at Bell Labs finally figured out germanium and silicon, they understood the basic physics of materials. Glass is a insulator, copper is a conductor, knock yourself out. They found ways to, well, if you understand the basic physics of these materials, you can make semiconductors. It didn't take long before an industry, Silicon Valley, grew around that, which clearly changed the way we all live and work and computers and communication. And we have the silicon economy of the last 60 years. They won the Nobel Prize at Bell Labs, but the industry grew up by turning it into a, a scaled up technology. The same basic science that they gave us Silicon Valley is now giving us carbon value. When you look at the ability to understand genomics and proteomics and what's going on in life, in almost every med school in the country now there's a petri dish full of stuff. This thing will make insulin. It's, it's beta cells. This one will conduct. It's, it's a neuron. This one will clean your kidneys. It's a nephron. That's the Bardeen's at, at, at Bell Labs. It's about to become scale to where you can manufacture the 3D printing and collagen and induced pluripotent stem cells that you take from a donor. So when you put it back in the donor, mm. there's no immunorejection. They don't need immunosuppressives. We are very soon going to start to be able to manufacture from scratch replacement human organs. First of all, the quality of life, the extension of life, Right now, almost all of medicine, which is bankrupting this country and the world, is chronic care. It costs a fortune to send people through dialysis centers. I know, I build that stuff. Or to wear an insulin pump for the rest of your life. We build that stuff. Almost all of medicine is expensive because it's chronic care. And I've never met a person looking with enthusiasm at their next dialysis treatment or looking for their next insulin injection. But if you could say to that person, oh, your kidney's not working here, stop by, we'll replace it, like we do the starter motor in your Ford. Oh, your pancreas isn't working. The quality of life, the reduction in cost, and the change in the way we live will make Silicon Valley look like a blip in the human experiment when we finally bring to scale the ability to manufacture replacement human organs. And I can tell you, we started a little consortium two years ago that now has 26 med schools, every major one in Boston and around the country has members, 150 other companies. We got a little starter boost because the Department of Defense gave us 80 million bucks. Last week we got another 50 million from HHS. But we are going to build in this area, in New England, yep. the core of an industry 
which will be the East Coast version of Silicon Valley, it will be Carbon Valley. So just a little bit of background on that. Mm. Um, it's called ARMI, ARMI, which is Advanced Regenerative, Regenerative Technology Imaging, and you beat out all of the major universities to be selected to actually build organs because in part you, you have experience with scaling something like that, which I think we're all very lucky yep. <laughs> for sure. When's that coming? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to the organs you have for now, but we're working as fast as we can. All right, you hear that liver? <laughs> you gotta ride this one out a little longer. Make it a few more years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I asked that question in part because as as you guys have built great companies, and Alexis, you in particular, now are investing in lots of uh, companies. I think over 200. Jason, you've created an, an innovation area within DraftKings. As you are thinking about how to expand your impact, how how, how do you best approach it? You build, buy, or partner, mm. and how do you decide? when you want to build it, and when you should partner. And I'm actually going to go to you, Jason, because you have most recently partnered with SB Tech. Bought. Bought, excuse me. And, but, 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 but how did you decide that was the approach that you were going to take? Uh, I think it started with, you know, what needs do we have as a company, and then what are the options to go out and fill those needs? And, um, you know, the background for us is we started as a daily fantasy sports company and over many years really home grew all of our technology for that. And uh, all of a sudden we were faced with this pending Supreme Court decision that could in, you know, a year's time uh, open up this whole new market for sports betting that we felt over time we could build great products in, but there were a lot of existing companies, actually very interesting because if you look at a lot of the um, you know most known technology companies the Amazons the Netflix the Facebooks the Googles you know I won't go through the list but you know them all most of them really all of them started here uh, many of them on the West Coast and um, you know all of them at some point expanded overseas because of regulation not creating a viable market for sports betting in the US all of these companies started in the UK we're really this like weird we took this kind of end around route to the market, um, you know, we're the lone example of a company that started, is based here, and really has, um, you know, been a major player early on in this market. Uh, so we knew we were playing from behind, and, and that many of our competitors that, you know, may not have as relevant a brand or a database, may not have a lot of the pieces we had now, um, that was what they were trying to catch up on. We needed to catch up on having the technology to actually do the sports betting uh, and, you know, create the markets, create the bets. And a team looked at, okay, we know we need it. Uh, what are the options to go out and achieve that? We can build it or we can buy it and we could partner. Uh, but we quickly decided after partnering for a little while that uh, really it was something we wanted to own, that it was too core to the product we were creating and it was too uh, confining to not own it. Um, it was stifling our ability to in uh, innovate. Uh, so we said, okay, we got to build or buy. And we went through a very thorough evaluation process. We looked at what it would take to build it, um, you know, how many uh, engineering hours, how much cost, how much time, uh, likelihood of success. Uh, and then we explored, you know, dozens and dozens of, of options to buy and diligence many, many companies along the way. So it's a pretty thorough process for us. And, um, you know, it was very analytically driven at the end. We, we looked at what 
uh, different factors we wanted to consider, speed to market, quality of product, cost, all those different things. And we decided that the best route was to buy. And it was unusual for us. We'd never done that before. We'd homegrown everything. So um, I think it was a testament to the team's ability to say, we're not going to approach everything in the same way. We're going to be objective about it. We're not going to have this bias that we can build everything, which a lot of companies, including us, uh, sometimes will have. And we're going to just be honest and, and, and objective. And I think that that led to the best decision. I think, you, Alexis, you can provide a perspective because you were actually bought. And yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, Reddit, Reddit got bought in 2006 by Condé Nast. And uh, it wasn't. I mean, they were benign. It was like benign neglect was the approach. Uh, so it was... I think it could have been a Google, YouTube, or Facebook, Instagram type story if it had been benign neglect with money. Uh, <laughs> but we didn't get that second part. Um, and so it, it, you know, we grew during those years, and they did, to their credit, sort of, they really sheltered us from the recession, yeah. um, which was helpful. But, uh, but it wasn't really going to thrive until it became independent again in 2014 raised outside funding, Conanast is now no longer a majority owner, and it's, you know, Reddit is its own independent company. Um, I wouldn't have come back in 14 to help lead the turnaround if that weren't the case. Um, and it really was the best thing for Reddit, it was the best thing for Conanast is very happy with owning a small percentage of what's now a $3 billion company, um, or smaller percentage, I should say, it's still, still meaty. Um, but at the end of the day, like, all I can think about for, for companies that might get acquired is if you're getting acquired for more than just like an acquire where you become part of the team and your product goes away, um, the more that the acquiring company can take an approach that still preserves a kind of autonomy mm. within that org, I think the more successful it's been. And if I look at, if I talk to friends of mine, um, uh, the CEO of Twitch, uh, Emmett, uh, you know, when they got acquired by Amazon, that was an org that very deliberately wants to create like, you know, little mini CEOs that all kind of run their own show and report up to, to Jeff, it has been very effective for Twitch to thrive in that environment, even though it was a, mm. a well-developed later stage company. It wasn't like you know, uh, an early stage acquisition like YouTube or Instagram was, uh, or earlier stage. Um, this was a real company with its own culture, but it's been allowed to maintain a lot of that in spite of being part of a larger org, and I think everyone's better off because of it. But then it's just a matter of deciding like what what is actually the right answer? Because that, that obviously isn't right for every, every company. I mean, I think it's also just interesting to hear your perspective and now having investing in companies, mm -hmm. how you're guiding those folks through the d decisions that you made. We try to give them an initialized, Gary and I, we, we wanted to create a firm where we would give founders the advice that we wished people had given <laughs> us while we were in the, in the trenches as CEOs. So uh, we just try to keep it 100 as best we can. I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of investors really try to rush towards an exit if they see a chance and aren't that confident in the business. Mm. And, uh, and they'll push founders in that direction and we really do our best not to. We really, really try not to, even though it's not necessarily, we would argue it is in our economic long-term best interest because we want the founders who are really gonna try to build you know, multi-billion dollar outcomes. Yeah. But we also feel like it's the right thing uh, to let them but I think, Nate, just listening to you on this panel in particular, you, you, you know, you get to be less focused on the business side and more focused on the content and the stuff that you care about. So maybe share a little bit of perspective when you were acquired and your thinking around that. Yeah, when I launched in 538 in 2008, um, you could actually make decent CPMs 
mm. from digital ads, right? Um, quite a bit better than you can now. Um, yep. Like if I took those 2008 ad rates, right, and scaled up the amount of traffic we get now, we could make like quite a bit of money, right? But it's much more difficult now. Um, but like, but look, um, I think I figured out that one of the things as you become um, successful, right, is that there are a lot of demands on your time, um, not all of which are work-related. There are some life opportunities and demands, right? But, you know, but your time becomes valuable. You have to kind of think about where do I add mm. the most value, what's most essential for me to do, and what can I outsource? Mm. Um, and there's just no way around the fact that, like, you know, I am better at building these models. I'm better at talking about politics, you know, on these podcasts. I'm better at that kind of thing than I am about, like, necessarily running the ins and outs of a business, right, or striking a deal with someone or whatever else. Um, but you do want to provide kind of creative vision and leadership. Mm. You do want to set some parameters and say, okay, here are some poles through which you must pass through, right? for anything we do at 538. Um, here are some space we can ski outside the poles temporarily and experiment and whatever else, but like, you know, but you have to like um, provide some differentiation, right? To the extent I do have views about kind of digital media, I think people don't emphasize differentiation enough. I think there was a big emphasis on scale and volume a few years ago, and you've seen like all those companies that focus on scale have basically turned into nothing, right? Whereas companies like the New York Times or whatever, or a lot of kind of more boutique sites or medium-sized sites have done relatively well. And so, you know, um, you know, being different is important and kind of right. not trying to copy everyone else, I think, is really important. And, and trusting customers to, to find and identify that, and especially for us, like, we have, like, a two-tiered customer base, right? We have customers who are with us all the time and people who come and visit 538 once every four years for a few months at a time, um, you have to be very alert that like, um, you know, those are different types of customers. Right. Um, and they both present opportunities, they both present different types of challenges, but you have to be alert to like, how will a forecast that we have, right? People in this room know that when we show a, a forecast that says 81% or whatever, right? They know what that means. It means that sometimes the underdog will win one in five times. Um, someone coming in once every four years might not get that potentially. Um, and so being aware of, of just who you're kind of writing for or creating visualizations and other content for. So I want to ask just a couple of uh, kind of quick hitter questions, which um, you guys can provide your perspective. Who was your most impactful hire? Dean, I'm going to start with you. All of them. <laughs> uh, I look for the best people. I think most companies... Um, I mean, the laws of large numbers are what they are. Average is average if you have a lot of people by definition. There wasn't one. Sorry? There wasn't one. Well, all I'm telling you is uh, the most important thing I do is collect really, really good people. Most of them are quirky. Most of them probably wouldn't do well in some big organization because organizations have a really good system. They call it management of weeding out anything that's unusual. I collect all the stuff that's unusual. I put it together. And... Uh, try to cover for the quirks uh, as opposed to use them to, to eliminate people. But, but I would say um, if we have a person that we don't think is extraordinary, we probably didn't do a good job for ourselves or that person. Mm. Anyone else? I mean, ironically, the most important hire I made is not someone I hired. Um, when I, 538 was at the New York Times for a couple of years, um, I was assigned a junior kind of um, reporter named Micah Cohen. 
um, who is now the managing editor of 538 and kind of left from the New York Times version to join me at the ESPN slash ABC News version um, and basically runs the site now. But like, we kind of grew up with the product and kind of, you know, we were both up late at night entering polls into databases and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, but he is a different skill set than I do, right? He is um, good at kind of sizing up um, people and kind of how things will be perceived. He's just very kind of well, well organized, right? He's quite um, pragmatic. And so, you know, you have to kind of, um, I know, I mean, the answer is probably like you have to try to find people who are you're compatible with, but not overly compatible with, you know what I mean? Um, I think you want people who disagree with you yeah. a certain percent of the time. If the disagreement is too constant, then that won't work. There's just too much friction, number one. They probably don't share enough of your taste. Um, but you don't want someone reporting to you um, who always agrees with you either, right? Then they're either like, I mean, this is, I don't know. This reminds me like a little bit of like the Michael Bloomberg campaign, you know? Was there nobody on the Bloomberg campaign who was like, you are going to be so terrible in this debate that, like, <laughs> just make up an excuse, say you have coronavirus, right? Like, don't, don't do this first debate because you're going to ruin your whole campaign, right? I mean, no one was willing to say that to him, I don't think. And you need someone like that um, who reports directly to you, who's very right. present in your life to, to check your, your, um, your errors like that. Mm. Do you guys like to call anyone out or? I, I didn't hire him, but my co-founder, Gary, is, is definitely the best person I've ever worked with. And, and I think we spend a lot of time with founders who rarely are solo. Um, it works, it happens for sure. Um, but the road of starting a company is so terrible <laughs> that it, it, it is helpful to be, to, to be in it with one or two other founders. And, and to your point, Nate, it's the, I think what we've found it to be most long-term successful is when there's a complementary skill set which you know, a lot of people talk about, right? This person's non-technical, this person's technical. It's a good model because we cover each other's blind spots. And that's, that's I think, 100% true. Um, where the sustainability really we've seen happen is where, where they do overlap is around a kind of values system or worldview. And where we've seen co-founder splits, you know, three, four, five years into the marriage uh, when things do get hard, because they will invariably get hard, um, and they have to make tough decisions. Where founders tend to split is because they just fundamentally see the world differently. Uh, a zero-sum view versus a plus-sum view. Uh, a, 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 a wanting to prioritize integrity of decisions versus sort of pragmatism and just getting it done. And those values are where a lot of the, the co-founder pairings go astray. And I think that's the great advantage to being able to work with Gary now for all these years is we are values aligned. Yeah. And so even where we come into conflict, they're still, we both, roughly see the world in the same way. Yeah, that's great. All right, so um, I wanna take what we've been talking about and translate it to sports. Mm. So obviously Jason and Nate, you guys do touch on sports, you've invested in some sports, but based on your experiences and what you know of attending games or uh, following teams, where do you think teams and leagues, what, what can they learn from kind of your, your story or what you have achieved? Where are the limitations in sports today? Where are the big opportunities? I, I was an early personal investor in an esports team called Cloud9, and mostly because I grew up playing video games and wished esports had existed so I could have made some money from all those competitive <laughs> matches I was in. Um, 
I really absolutely believe that every sports franchise should be thinking about their brand, their marketing, their community building, their content strategies as though they were an esports team. I, if, I, I didn't invest in 100 Thieves, but they're one of the best examples of a franchise that is able to just talk to their fans in real time and build relationships globally in a way that I have not seen any of the traditional sports teams doing. And I think going forward, it's, it's gonna be the status quo. Um, and I personally believe that women's soccer here in the US can be the next esports because of an opportunity that's not been taken advantage of in such a nascent professional league. But I think, I think esports will be a model for, for franchising. That's great, great perspective. Anyone else want to jump in here with some thoughts to help the sports, organiz sports organizations? I mean, I think it's important to, um, I guess this isn't immediately sports adjacent, but like it's important to like stand up for, <clears throat> for your product. Um, because, you know, we have a product that often is kind of misunderstood by people and people kind of assign some of the opposite attributes to it that it actually probably has in, in reality. Um, but when you do look at different sports leagues, they seem to be different in that ability of standing up for their product, right? Where the NBA is always examining things and making changes and kind of quite flexible, right? But they're defending their product, right? And they believe in the core of their product, whereas it seems like sometimes baseball is more, um, more bashing itself. Somehow there's one, baseball fans love nothing more than like a scandal involving baseball, right? And somehow that didn't get handled all that well necessarily. Um, you know, football is almost maybe too dogmatic in the other direction, right? Um, although the, you know, the competition committee makes a lot of changes too, but like, I think it's important to, to stand up for yourself. It's a very kind of basic life lesson. I agree. Jason, anything there? Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, my insight, the sports leagues are already all over and know, which is, I think, particularly for the younger generations, fantasy embedding is going to transform the way people experience uh, their content. And I also think it's important to look at that in a broader trend that we're seeing right now uh, in content consumption, which is it is becoming more interactive. And I actually equate what Alexis does to the same thing. People go on Reddit to discuss different types of content because they want to interact about it. They don't want to passively consume it. They, don't, they want their opinions about it to be known. They want to hear other people's opinions. They want to have a position uh, that either you know, is validated or not validated. At the core, that's what we do too. People want to take a position on whether they think this player is going to have a good game or this outcome will occur. And the validation is, do they win their fantasy match? Do they win their bet? Uh, a lot of it is social. Do they win it against their friends? Can they brag to their friends, their coworkers? Uh, and I think it really is part of the same thing that's driven social media. People had this pent up desire, and now with mobile, this uh, constant access to be able to, at any moment in time, express an opinion on something and interact with others about that opinion. Uh, and I think that that's just something that's not going away and is going to continue to uh, affect content of all types, sports or others, uh, for a very long time. And to be, as you know, brutally honest, I know nothing about sports, and I'm not here to give anybody advice. I'm here to collect it. Um, you talked about branding and marketing. You said, you know, a scandal at him. I mean, fundamentally, I believe if you can make an exciting event happen where nobody knows the outcome till it happens versus in school where the answer's in the back of the book and you're getting graded by the teacher and nobody likes that, but everybody likes the teacher after school because he or she is the coach and it's nurturing and there's not quizzes and tests. There's, there's you know, 
the school band and there's mascots and there's cheerleaders and there's awards. We made first in the model of what I thought is a sport and it succeeded in some ways. I got 80,000 schools, I got a million kids. It's got everything except it doesn't have fans. It do We're the best kept secret in the world. I came here today to figure out that somebody's gonna give us the secret because as I said before, our sport, I think, any sport, whether it's cricket that nobody plays here because it's not part of the culture or basketball or football or baseball, which we obsess at here, it's not, I don't think, the physical activity that makes one successful or not. I'm trying to figure out through all you experts what to do to take our first program and make it available to all kids everywhere because it has a couple of small advantages over other sports. You don't have to be seven feet tall to do robotics. You don't have to weigh 300 pounds. You, you don't have to be male or female. You don't have to have perfect vision or good hearing. We have the only sport where every kid can turn pro. We have the only sport where all kids can play. We have the only sport where, while it, I think it's as exciting as any other sport, the content of it will give you a career, not distract you from an education. And I don't know how to get that message out, and I'm not going to leave you until you tell me how to do it. <laughs> well, I, I would say that a lot, of, a lot of the people who are here are huge believers in data and analytics and in STEM. So you're talking to the right audience, for sure. Um, and I think the, the point is that you're learning how to be competitive, how to work with other people. It's the same things that you learn in sports. So it, I, to me, it really translates very well. But here's, here's, a, here's a couple of questions. We'll start with this, and any of you guys can jump in here. What recent invention or technology excites you? Whatever Dean's working on. <laughs> yeah, I like this the, the 3D printed organs. organs thing. That sounds, that sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So along those lane, uh, lines, um, with respect to replacing organs, will, will sports teams be able to replace ACLs for high-level talent for a faster recovery? The very first, the very first system that we've made after two years to demonstrate that we can go from petri dishes and roller bottles to scalable manufacturing is we have a closed system that we demonstrated relatively recently to this entire group at Army Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing into which we put some cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, and over a 40-day period as they got processed and grew, out of the end came a seven centimeter long bone ligament bone segment ready for implantation. And we, that will probably be the first thing that we bring to scale and it'll be great for ACLs. Wow. By this time next year, we're gonna be bringing little tiny beating hearts out of the end of that system. They'll be pediatric size, but um, ACLs are one of the most common uh, uh, surgeries done in this country and typically you end up with inflammation and all sorts of other things because your body doesn't like foreign stuff being put in it. That's a good thing. That's what viruses are all about. Well, it turns out that if the thing you put back into the body happened to have started with your own DNA in it, it's like getting a replacement from the original equipment manufacturer. It fits. Yeah, one thing I think, I don't know, I'm excited, but also I think is really just uh, something to watch is uh, uh, automated driving. Um, you know, there's a lot of positives to it. Uh, I think if implemented correctly, it can greatly reduce traffic accidents and fatalities, which is obviously, you know, a huge cause of death and uh, injuries in, in our country and around the world. Um, but one thing I think is, you know, generally being talked about with technology, but maybe not as much, or at least I haven't heard it with this, is. Uh, this particular technology's impact on the uh, economy and the job market. There are literally millions of people 
who drive something for a living. That is how they make their money and uh, that is their career. That is how they feed their families. Uh, and that is going to change. And you're seeing that all throughout different types of technology and people sort of opaquely, I hear, talk about it. But there are some really real things that are happening, you know, in the not too distant future that are going to be, you know, disruptive uh, in many good ways and also uh, in ways that, you know, people maybe aren't anticipating and preparing for. Uh, economically, uh, and so that's something I think it's really interesting to keep an eye on. Maybe we need to give those kids a different set of <clears throat> skills, like maybe they should be building those autonomous robots instead of driving those boards. Well, and that's an example of, you know, a more proactive approach, is how do you start to mm -hmm. change the funnel uh, so that there's less people going into jobs that you don't think 10, 20, 30 years from now are going to exist, and more people going into jobs that are, you know, right now, if anything, uh, too, too few people do, and there's more demand for them than we have qualified uh, people to perform. Yeah, this, exactly right. this is why I was, uh, hopefully there's some Yang gang out here. <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious. I don't know if UBI is the solution, but the future he's talking about is real. And it, essentially, in the last couple of years, computers can now see. And so you see that in autonomous vehicles, which is the most like extreme, impressive, dynamic version. But, but way easier and literally happening right now, like in meat space, in real life, are um, autonomous self-checkout. So Amazon Go has a product that I'm sure a lot of you have used. We funded their biggest competitor, uh, Standard Cognition, which is trying to arm all the other retailers against Amazon. But they're already, all the products, the, the products in the market right now in the test stores are already getting north of 98, 99% accuracy. A human doing the little boop, boop, checkout is like 96. Because uh, sometimes stuff, you know, wow. goes, sometimes it gets miscounted, other times, you know, it just kind of goes right through. <laughs> but at the end of the day, retailers are ready for this, especially because they're already in pretty low margin businesses. The idea of a delightful user experience, it's awesome, right? You get to walk in, get your Coke off the shelf and leave. That's an amazing user experience. Yep. That, it is ready, it is happening. Go to the test store now. And so this is gonna roll out in the next five years. Mm -hmm. There's no like, hey, we need to wait and see and make sure these are safe hesitations, it's just, let's go. And so what happens to retail in literally the next five years when a lot of these jobs get reduced from 10 people in the store to like one? And, and these are repercussions we're gonna feel very acutely, especially if we live in cities where, um, you know, it's not just a few coal miners who are, not to discredit a small number of coal miners, but like just statistically, the number of people who will be affected by this given the size of retail is massive. And, and if, uh, if we aren't preparing, we're not doing our jobs as a country. It's also actually gonna be incredibly influ in influential for games themselves, because the lines maybe that people have yeah. waiting for food, One of, it will be able to just go in and grab your food and not have lines anymore. Yeah, which is an awesome experience, which, which is like the, and then the part that I don't want to happen is for the tech itself to be vilified, because it is, these are going to make all of our lives better, it is how do we have the honest conversations today about preparing a population for a massive sea change that is happening right now, and we're not even talking about it. Right. Well, we're out, we're out of time, Nate. You have one final comment on the... On uh, we're doing a live Hot Takedown <laughs> podcast in 15 minutes or so, so come watch that. And uh, so let's thank our speakers. We're going to have actually a little uh, show of Dean's First Robotics and some of the great stuff that they've been doing impacting a million students so far that'll uh, start running at the end of this. So thank you guys all. I hope you enjoyed the discussion.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.